So whatever you would like to uh, have commented on, have me comment on, I would be happy to try. And uh, it's going to be a very short evening if there aren't any questions. <laughs> 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 okay, good. Yes? Could you help me to distinguish between judging mind and discerning mind? Uh, very good question. The question is, uh, what is the difference between judging mind and discerning mind? Discerning mind and judging mind. Um, a, a, a judgment that often has a kind of a mental evaluation, with it, like whether it's good or bad, whether it's um, uh, often evaluative, you know, some sort of kind of comparison in relationship to it, doesn't it? And so there's a kind of contraction to most judgments, and uh, often there is a, 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 a wave of some sort of personal feeling in regard to the judgment, sometimes uh, superiority or opinionation or whatever. And discernment has none of that. So discernment is a beautiful quality of clarity that simply sees and discerns what it sees. And so it, it sees, it sees completely, and it then moves in relationship, rather spontaneous, to what it sees. There isn't a moderating influence between what it discerns and the activity that responds to that discernment. And certainly no mental kickback in relationship to that, that seeing. Now, uh, you can get a feeling for that sometimes when you're very quiet in yourself and you begin to see where judgment arises from. And often judgment, it's very interesting, arises from a kind of feeling, if it's a judgment of others uh, or ourselves, it's a feeling of self-diminishment that lives within that judgment. Because what we do is we try to put somebody else's else down through our judgment so that we can have a brief moment in which our head is elevated. And it feels a little bit like a teeter-totter. If I can keep him down, I can keep swinging, swinging up, right? And that, what that offers us is a, a respite, a moment of respite from the pain we're feeling that gave birth to that judgment. And the pain that has come from that judgment is often some sense of self-inadequacy. But we put so much weight on the judgment of the other person, we don't see the feeling of pain that is driving that judgment. The sort of the, the judgment might be then considered a symptom of a deeper sense of uh, pain that's within us. So one, after uh, many laborious years of trying just to watch judgment on its own and not knowing it as a symptom, I saw that it wasn't really improving. I was very um, judgmental, and it remained that way for a number of years. And so what was very helpful for me was simultaneously to, simultaneous to the judgment was acknowledging the pain I was feeling and where that judgment was coming from, what the motivating influence for even judging was. And at that point, I could then put less focus on what I was judging and turn the arrow back to see the pain of that judgment and put that pain on my lap, 
and flush it out and really see where that was coming from. And uh, there is uh, a lot of pain in all of us from which that judgment is derived. And it is a very difficult, it's not an easy task. In fact, it's probably one of the hardest spiritual tasks to ever face are the root issues in us that lead to the evaluation of the world as we have seen it to be. And to acknowledge the depth of the assumption and certainty of that self-assumption when we see it. And to really be able to look at that and say, wow, you know, I need to question this again. I need to look at this sense of self-diminishment, which has many influences. Judgment is just one of them. Any overcompensation and activity often is derived from a sense of inadequacy internally. So when I'm willing to look at this thing, and I'm really willing to expose myself to my own pain, what does it require but humility? Extraordinary humility, because the pain will take you uh, to, uh, to the reason that there has been arrogance at all. Right? As a, arrogance, again, is a compensation quality to the pain we feel. And so when you go into the depth of the pain that you feel about yourself, you're sort of heard, uh, you're sort of entering the very kernel of truth that you really believe about yourself. Now you're on dangerous ground. And it requires, uh, I find for most people, a lot of patience, extraordinary gentleness, extraordinary, uh, often some duration of time. Very infrequently is it, is it, uh, uh, is the whole of the pain ended in a single, uh, a single um, exposure. And above everything else, the absolute intention that I will not die from this or with this. I will not die with this. That's more important than anything. Because that keeps bringing the forces of the universe together to show us where that pain is. Without the forces of the universe coming, working on our behalf of our intention, you can't do it alone. You don't know it's there except when the conditions are, are ripe for that to be exposed. And when those conditions are right for the exposure of that, then you can work with it. And you see the value of pain for that very reason. And we've talked a lot about the holy quality of pain, Narayan did in her messenger talk. And so ultimately, judgment ends in what? Discernment. Because when we aren't being driven by the pain, the anxiety of what we are or who we are, there is clarity of mind to see without the compensating quality that judgment is trying to achieve. And awareness without that compensating quality is discernment. You see? So we've come full circle. Let's see if there's a back one in the back there anywhere. Yes. Yes, dear. You. <laughs> so I want to make this concise, but 
Like the what years? Like the lotus eaters. Like I would just, it was like, like a half hour would be gone. Yes, right, to, right. I was wondering if you had advice about dealing with memories that you know from, like you say memory, but right. it's not enough. <laughs> they take you over. I would be happy to say a little bit about that. Um, question is about memories that arise in the practice that sweep you away and sweep you away for long periods of time. And each of us have memories within us that have the power to take over our attention for a considerable duration. Okay? And it's interesting that when you begin to relax, often you access more of those deeper memories, some memories that you don't even remember that you remember. You know, they're it's uh, almost held within the physical tissue of the body. And uh, as the body relaxes and releases its grip upon uh, the resistance to ha exposing those memories, then those memories arise. And it's an important quality to understand that those memories are coming out of us. We're not engendering new memories in us, obviously, because it's the past that's coming from us. And some of those past memories, depending upon how much emotional volatility there was in it, and that can be positive or negative, they can capture us within the fantasy of the energy of the memory. Now, what's interesting about memories as they are released from the body is that the emotional intelligence within that release is exactly the same emotional intelligence we had when they were engendered at whatever year that happened. At age three, age six, age nine, they come out as age three, age six, and age nine. And so it's no wonder then that we don't have the sophistication or the maturity to be able to stand steady with them when we're screaming at whatever age that uh, had occurred, you see? So in this way, we have to be very patient with our memories, very, very gentle. Again, gentleness and patience, are, I could virtually answer every question with those two words. Uh, the, the other quality that arises uh, that, uh, is that um, as these memories arise, and even though there may be only flashes of connection with the present as those memories do occur, those flashes of memory, of, of presence, the flashes of attention or, or knowing they're arising in us, uh, actually have a maturing effect upon the emotional intelligence of those memories, even if it's very brief. And so as these memories arise, and, it's, and we're just catching them from our eyes, I like to say that sometimes they're like, you know, little, very quick uh, birds that are flying or things that are happening out of the corner of our eye and that we're much more uh, embroiled in the memory than really attentive to it. Still, there, there can be some little flutterings around. Even that level of attention begins to mature the memory because what matures the memory is awareness hmm? and patience. And so at some point, uh, you can bring it, that memory up to maturity very quickly uh, as the as practice matures, and this is over some period of time, with a depersonalized sense of what the mind is so that we're not so 
taking the memory so personally with an increased understanding of what time is and where it's coming from, that it isn't anything but a flash of thought and feeling now, and with a deep stability of consciousness that we have garnered over perhaps a long period of time. Those three factors allow a settledness and a um, stability for those memories to arise and mature very quickly. And as the practice matures, memories mature much quicker, and there are deeper sense, deeper rooted memories that arise the deeper the practice goes. So the practice actually starts working in conjunction with the healing of many, many of our historical memories over time. And some memories, I know that I have had one for some period of time, where are pre-verbal. There's not an obvious uh, visual memory. It's more like a, a, a sense of something, despair or despondency or something that's just locked in the system itself. It has no words to it, and yet it, it needs exactly the same quality of attention and openness that the more verbal and remembered memories have. The ones that I cannot speak to and which I would like to um, defer are memories of, of shattered, uh, uh, which shatter the person in terms of like abuse. Uh, I can't speak to that. Uh, that was fortunately not my childhood. But I can see that over time, uh, over the persistence and willingness, over time, very patiently, often with the assistance of lots of therapeutic intervention, as well as a consistent intention not to die with this, that even those begin to heal over the course of one's life in meditation. I've seen people mature uh, quite remarkably to some of the most devastating early childhood memories that you could ever think. So there is hope for all of us in this. So the question is about pleasant memories and whether it's a waste of time to spend your time remembering. <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> it's a waste of time. <laughs> it's very pleasant, very seductive, and it's not happening. Okay? Next question. Yes, sir. Yes. And let the eye and the mind be in the awareness. Yes. That opened the door for me in the walking meditation, where the awareness became very, very broad. Right. And I and my body and my mind were in that awareness. Yes. It very lasted. concise, very concise, please. Yes. 
the awareness is benevolent. Yes. It's non-judgmental. Yes. It's very wise. Yes. And the question yes. is that I can't say that it's my awareness. Yes. And that's okay. confusing. Okay. So the question has to do with uh, instructions I gave a few days ago in which I suggested rather than to walk with awareness, we walked within awareness, so that awareness was a pre-existing state that we were walking through rather than something that we were engendering through the sense of our own efforts. And he was remarking about some of the qualities that he perceived that awareness held when he observed it from that vantage point. And one of those, or some of those, were that it pre-existed him, that it was benevolent, that it was wise. There is an intelligence, it's a remarkable, you know, when you get a sense of that, that it does predate us. You know, the Zen expression, uh, what was your face prior to birth, or something like that, what was your, and what will your face be after death? Well, you get a sense, you get a sense of where they're pointing uh, through experiences such as that. Uh, I think what we often do is that we get very uh, caught within a, a mechanical application of mindfulness that we learned very early on in our training. And the reason that I can sometimes be very harsh in my speech of, uh, and, and uh, uh, Dharma talks is that I want to clear the floor. I really intentionally want to clear the floor because I think if you hold on to anything in Dharma, where you're grasping needs to be seen. Oh, but I don't take that, don't, don't, you know, and I, I'll get many notes, often very volatile, <laughs> about what has been taken. You can't do that to me. I, I didn't do anything. I just <laughs> cleared the floor. Dharma is clearing the floor. That's what it's supposed to do. So what... Because then it allows us a new perception, a new orientation to the very things. We can then bring our practice back. And I was very happy to have your practice come back to you. But at least you knew it as a recovery, as having been recovered from the floor being cleared. Now you can bring it back and use it with a different orientation to it, with a different respect for it, and also with a different intentionality for it. That if you just hold on to it, in mindlessly being mindful, you never understand that there's a limitation to any technique you ever use. Any technique. Including applying mindfulness. Because we get caught up in it being a self-serving application of attention. Something I'm doing. It is not. And never was. And I'll show you very quickly why. When you are sitting and you're following your breath, and suddenly your mind is inattentive, did you ask for that to happen? You were just swept away. It had nothing at all to your do. You can deliberately think, but mostly we hold the intention to come back to the breath, but we're swept away. Now, even further, when we wake up from the fact that we have just been thinking, Did you wake yourself up, or do you now acknowledge that you are awake after the fact of being awake? 
You see, you didn't have anything to do with waking up either. So where is your effort in this? Unless we sweep the floor, we never ask questions that probe deeper than a kind of superficial application of our first and perhaps most basic instruction. And so this application of awareness, of mindfulness, to what we're doing certainly has a point and purpose. There's no question. And it serves us for a long period of time. At some point, we get into an arrest, a resting position with our mindfulness. Because it's us in mindfulness. And it works only under our volition and only under our energetic appeal. From time to time to see that this thing is much bigger than our little minds can work it. And to show you that was that exercise where I said, okay, now be a person being mindful. Just be a person and apply mindfulness so that you have the experience of being mindful. And so we can all do that. And now have the experience of awareness of the person within awareness. Have the experience of the person within awareness. Whoa, so that's a whole, wait a minute, why, what do you mean? First of all, I have to reframe it. You see, it throws, it levels, it throws everything off the floor, doesn't it? I can't, what, I, wait, wait, wait a minute, effort, everything. But see, you see the beauty of that. Because suddenly, something, you turn, Suddenly there is something that is revealed that has its own intelligence, not my intelligence, that pre-exists the experience of me, that is benevolent because it's doing nothing to us except holding us. And that takes us to a state of wonder. And now we're in a different dimension to ourselves. And some of you can close back down, reapply mindfulness, and that is fine. But now you can't forget that mindfulness and its application is a limited expression of a practice that has a certain duration until it opens to something far greater. You see? Yes, in the back there. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and it's left. You know? Yeah. And, it didn't, and, and now I want it back. Right. <laughs> right. 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 While I was in it, I signed up for the retreat coming in tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> we do that for the financial stability of IMS. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
so very, very concise, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, she said she had that experience of uh, that shift of consciousness outside of her own self, and uh, it felt very alluring. Now listen carefully to this, because I'm going to take you somewhere else. And you think to yourself, how do I get that back? That is the same question as how do I maintain this retreat when I go back into my life? It's exactly the same question. And here's the very simple answer, and it's not meant to be cute or funny at all. It is meant to be absolutely true. You cannot. It's at the wrong end. You're looking at the wrong end here. Your efforts are the very embodiment of the ignorance of which you're trying to escape. And to ask that question, how do I maintain it? How do I keep it going? Freezes you in a particular context to your ignorance that assures that your ignorance will continue and that your ever-fleeting moments of mindfulness will become even briefer. This is the fact. I have not seen anyone apply mindfulness continuously from the sense of self. It's an impossible task because the sense of self is forgetting that embodied energy. It doesn't live in the present. It can't live in the present. It only lives with what can be. And so when you live with mindfulness with what can be, you've already forgotten it. So what do we do? What do we do, folks? Because this is important. Well, we have to do something. We can't just say, that's it. That's life. Let's just get back and... No, it's not sufficient. There is something, and that's our intentionality, our compelling need for wakefulness. Not our compelling need to practice. Those are often in competition with one another. And our compelling need for wakefulness is something much larger than our momentary desire to bring something forth. When, those, when the energy, the two halves of the seemingly opposite pair of forgetting and remembering, are no longer at odds with one another, which are really two different experiences within the same hemispheric mind, right? Going back to the Dharma talk. When there is the release of that tension, then there's the possibility of awareness. Until now, it's momentary. It's just fleeting. It's like, and every one of us gets frustrated by it because we can't maintain it. And we say, okay, now I have to come back on retreat. Yeah, right? Which is fair enough. And in a long period of time, that's what many of us have to do. And that's a phase of practice. But that's not the end of practice. And the practice has to mature out of that understanding. And it's beautiful when it happens because what happens is a very different kind of calling. What wakes you is the resistance and what 
you can see then is this resistance, this state of mind I'm in, this, this momentary interference of awareness, not something I can call forth, but something I can easily block through my momentary investment in a state of mind I'm having. Then you arrest the investment in that state of mind. In other words, you stop with that state of mind. You don't let it compel you into the next step forward. You simply stop with it. And in that stopping, awareness arises. Because you no longer believe in the state of mind as being the truth. And when you no longer believe in the state of mind, the energy that was invested in that state of mind, in the conservation, the thermodynamics of it all, goes to awareness. But as long as the I, big I, small awareness, big awareness, small I, that's the proportionality. This, 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 this. No I, infinite awareness. And when you really want that, when you really want the infinite, the unconditioned, infinite contentment and aliveness, nothing, everything, every condition is mediocre, mediocre. Pales, doesn't even, you don't even, it's like. (laughs) And that's available to every single person here. Every single person. And what is the stumbling block in this culture towards that, the greatest stumbling block is our self-doubt. And that's why... We have to work with that self-doubt because we really don't believe, if we look at the assumptions, we don't believe we can do it. And so when we come to our practice, part of ourselves, we'll give a half effort or we'll go towards the pleasant because we can do that one. You know, I can assure you that if you stay with your breath, over time, your breath, you will, the line will go up. You'll have more breath seen per Minute, it will be a, it's, it's absolutely scientifically graphable. You know, but that isn't the, that isn't the practice. And you'll also arrest for longer and longer periods in states of calm and bliss and quietude. But there's something else. And often we arrest there because of the doubt we have about ourselves to really take this thing to the, to the nth degree, to go all the way with this. And we hear, even in the Buddhist tradition, oh, you have lifetimes. Well, of course, I, you know, what well, all that does is encourage more doubt. I can't do it now. I've got another hundred million lifetimes at least. So I ask you this, how many lifetimes have you lived? Maybe you've already lived that number. <laughs> when are we going to? Where are we going to concede the point that we can do it? You think it's going to? You're going to rise up one day and say, "Yeah, today's a day." <laughs> Not likely. 
you fester in self-doubt. Self-doubt is what gets encouraged and cultivated. This is possible. It's not even possible. It's, it's immediate. I don't know how to say it so that it is so close to you that And does that take form? Is that about retreating? Is it about life? Lived in the job? What? The whole of it. All of it. That's what it's about. All of it. As soon as I weigh in one side of that, I'm already I've lost it. Already I'm far, far from it because I'm delaying, postponing, procrastinating immediacy. See? That's why I clear the floor. Yes, in the back. You talk about the, uh, the hindrances and how they may impact uh, your, your practice negatively and positively. The hindrances and how they impact our practice negatively and positively. When, we're not see- when hindrances are not seen, they have a negative impact. Think of... Think of the path of meditation is to go from being unconscious to conscious. And anything that's unconscious will keep us within its conditioned influences so that we don't have clarity over what's really happening. And so we just keep fostering the sameness, the same response to it. And the hindrances have forever remained within the darkened areas of our unconscious. So that when something comes up, within, we just automatically concede the point. And be, we're extraordinarily driven by these tendencies in mind. We're trying to compensate them. We believe them so full-heartedly that in their appearance, we're immediately trying to compensate for them. Sleepiness, I'm to bed. Restlessness, I'm out of here. Desire, I'm often chasing. Fear, I'm going the other way, right? <laughs> Doubt, I can't do it in a, you know, it's like, right? Okay, so now let's take those hindrances and move them along the continuum. Just start moving it along the continuum. And you can see that every notch towards them, you begin to, so here, here let me show you halfway or some way between where we start and where we eventually end up, all right? So I'm sleepy. So here's the question then. Is awareness sleepy? You see? I'm sleepy, yes. No question. But is awareness sleepy? See, that throws off it. That's a different... Okay, let's see if awareness is sleepy. No, awareness isn't sleepy. Isn't that interesting? It's only the form that is succumbing to this. Not the formless. Is awareness restless? Is awareness desiring? Now we start to, oh, there's something else in the picture here. And the divesting of the energy from the certainty of the form being the totality of the picture to something holding the frame of that picture. Oh. Okay, now it's workable, you see. 
Yes. Yes, beautiful. Different voices or qualities. Yes. And it's been really interesting, but as the day has gone on, that's disappeared more as the mind has sure. taken more control. Sure. Um, and just more energetic ownership of, yes, sure. of the, the floor. Right. And um, I've also noticed that um, my dreaming here has been so clear yes. that I'm wondering about what happens with the mind, or if you can comment a bit about what happens with the mind in the in that transition phase between sleeping or, or sleeping and waking. Um, I'm just really curious about, about what's happening there. Well, I mean, uh, physiologically, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know any more than anybody else about these transition times, except the question is about what happens to the mind between sleepiness and waking, wakefulness, what happens in that transition time, because she was noticing that spontaneously came a kind of choiceless awareness when she was awakened. And I'm, you know, I, I really don't uh, have much knowledge or psychic ability within that. I do know that at different times in my practice I've had lucid dreaming and uh, the ability to see that uh, period of time when you're falling off to sleep and that period of time right before you do sleep uh, you can make awareness. Awareness often follows into that time. It's never followed me into deep sleep uh, where uh, there is no uh, nothing occurring whatsoever deep sleep but some yogis claim to have had the ability to for awareness to even be there and uh, I don't have any reason to doubt them. And then when somebody when we wake up, uh, often the mind uh, has been refreshed sufficiently in that sleep so that there can be a crispness to the consciousness upon waking and therefore you can wake up. Uh, if you don't, it, unless there's a pre-existing anxiety to your life, which can very quickly cover that up and you can get up in a kind of strategy form rather than in terms of an openness, uh, but if, if there's a kind of a clean consciousness and relationship to life itself and you're just waking up in the middle of it, oftentimes it can be this beautiful morning where you don't need to do anything but just lie there in the extraordinary clarity of that moment uh, the, where uh, the mind is being seen for what it is without any sense of effort or movement within that consciousness whatsoever. Hmm? Yes. 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 Uh, about body pain during meditation, and is there a certain meditative pain that comes up uh, persistently in meditation? And uh, I would say yes. Most pain while you're sitting is pain of the release of of a certain kind of holding that the body has been uh, grasping for an, an, some time. So you sit down with that kind of tightness, and we all have it. If you have a good massage therapist, they can just touch your back into those, those, that, uh, those areas of tension that are in us. And what happens when you're in silence and not adding more tension to your psyche or your body is that those things start to release. 
But just as if you were carrying a heavy suitcase for some time and you put the suitcase down and you didn't try to open your hand, you would be relieving the resistance, but it hurts to open. So too your body, as it relieves the resistance that has been, you've been carrying, hurts in its opening. It exposes the pain that was in its closure as in its opening. So much of, I would say, 90% of pain in the body is that kind of pain. Neck pain, back pain, lower back pain, knee pain, lots of that. And that's good pain in the sense that it's coming out of you, not... You know. And then there, is, there are people who, sit, who have chronic pain that they sit with, and that's a different situation. Uh, so let me just talk a little bit about pain and how to work with it regardless. And uh, I think uh, there are some fields within mindfulness like Johnny Kabat-Zinn's work where chronic pain has been thoroughly explored within this particular tradition and you can read his work and really flesh out how he works with it in terms of mindfulness. But very simply, two things are occurring. There's the physical discomfort of what's occurring and then there's the mind's reaction to that physical discomfort. Now when I uh, was uh, doing a three-month retreat here very early on, Harvard University came and they wanted to test that. So they had, in the beginning of the three-month course, they had us plunge our hand into ice water and to give two readings. The first reading was the pain we felt in the, on the hand. The second was how worried we were that it would be damaged from that pain. And so before the meditation, uh, three-month course, both of those numbers were very high at each recording. Nine, 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 ten, ten, ten. <laughs> I'm dying, I'm dying. Okay, so after, three months later, sitting, walking, all that, after that, they came back with their little ice water containers. <laughs> we plunged our hand back in the our hand back in the ice water. This time, the first number stayed consistent. Eight, nine, eight, nine. The second number, the fear response to the pain diminished considerably. So it's, instead of nine, nine, it was nine, two, nine, one, just like that. So what happened during that three-month course is that we came to terms with the thoughts we were engendering and the story we were having and the narrative we were inviting within the feeling we, that was occurring, you see? And because what happens, and it's very important, I mean, see, there's a feeling. Pain has a, it doesn't have, I'm not using this as an emotion, but it has an, unple, it's unpleasant. Okay, so the precursor of our narrative story is an unpleasant tone. What happens is that the, you skip a rock across a lake, it hits unpleasant, and it's off and running. It's, where does it go? Into the air of thinking. I don't even know if it'll land back on the... It's just off. Because, especially in fear, there's such a survival mechanism, there's such a um, uh, immediate knee-jerk survival. Everything tenses down. Everything is in drama, dra drama mode. I mean, the, the body has learned how to close itself down, you know, and, and the sirens go off and all of that. And... What's actually happening is that the thoughts are elaborating on that feeling tone and just moving off endlessly in the direction of panic because of the adrenaline rush and all of the physiological changes that accompany that feeling tone as well. 
if when you sit with yourself for a while, you see the nonsense of that. And even though it's almost a genetic disposition to have it, genetics don't mean that that it's the rule of the game. Your awareness decides the rule of the game. And if you're willing to look at that and see the nonsense and come back to the simple sensations that are present, they can be worked with usually. And a discerning awareness comes in that says, this is pain that you need to look at. And then you move your leg. It's not an aversive pain. It's a discerning intelligence. You're overstaying your welcome here. And you move it. And that's different than the contracted sense of panic that we feel in which we have to move. See? Okay. Wait a second. I've got to recover. you got to give me... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. And also the sense of that eye that's doing the, or trying to do the meditating. Or right. Be mindful. How do I work with the solid? Are you talking about I, not E Y E? The eye behind my E Y E. Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> so how do I work with the sense of self? Okay, how do I work the sense of self in meditation? How do I, we, we, you're going to, first of all, and I don't mean to be cute on this, it, it, you have to love it out of position. Now that's the truth. If you hate yourself, if there is the, any tone of trying to get rid of yourself, and many of us have that tone to start off our practice, which is why we encourage so much heart and meta, meta in this, then you're, you're just going to be uh, in, in uh, constant chasing mode of this thing. And it's very much like a tire bulge that you squeeze at one point and it comes out somewhere else. You don't get rid of this thing by squeezing it. Uh, and when I say loving it out, you, you get curious about the thing because it seems so uh, omnipresent everywhere. You know, it's like, God almighty, this thing's following me. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, and at first it gets burdensome because you just get a feeling for it. And it, it, you just get a feeling for yourself. Some of it, this is hard. This is the hard one. This is the big one, and it's the hard one. And it's the, it's the, it's the embodiment of, the, of what's left unconscious. It's where we are still unconscious that it forms. Uh, and so we can't get too panicky about it or too forthright or too ambitious because those are the strategies the sense of self uses to establish itself. Now, when you use the very strategies the sense of self uses to establish itself, you can be sure that putting an end to the sense of self is the self's greatest mission in life. It loves it because it will never do it. But it will give it a noble try. And so you just chase and, and, and oh, man, you know, you're on such a great mission to do away with yourself. <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't work, and I just wrote a book about it. I wrote a book about how it cannot work on that front. Because I think it's missing. I think it's missing in the literature. How do we work this thing? Do we really want it to work? Do we want to be free? 
do, where's the intention here? What's our intention for our life? It's going to follow our intention. All of our meditation will forever follow our intention. If our intention is towards the greatest stretch, the greatest yearning of the heart, then this will be the final obstacle, stepping out of oneself, will be the final obstacle to reaching that destination. And you, so then you just, you try things, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you stop trying them because it doesn't work. And so much of meditation is the learning about what doesn't work. And, but you have to be willing to learn what doesn't work, not just perpetuate it because the teacher, teacher doesn't want to know what's going exactly on you. They give general instructions and you say, well, that instruction doesn't work for me, but I'll have to do it because he knows more than I or she. No, no, you have to intuit this thing for yourself. This doesn't work. And then you get, it reinforces the intention to wakefulness when you work in a cooperative way with that intuitive sense that we all have about what works and doesn't. When you give yourself away, you're giving your intention away. And you, that is the most sacred thing you have. And yet we do it so easily. Why? Because we self-doubt. That's why I mean this. It's just so destructive. So when we've gone to us and we get a feeling for this thing, then, okay, now, I don't know anything about this, but I want to learn about it. I want to see what this thing is. I see where I'm always in the picture no matter what I do. Now, I want you to do something with me, if you will. Just be quiet for a moment. I mean real quiet. Now just let your attention go back in and ask yourself what this is, this sense of me. And what you sense is that there's nothing you don't know. That's what you sense. I don't know. I thought I did. I've been acting as if I did. All of my statements and purposes in life have seemed to be arising from something where I was certain about this one thing. But when we're quiet and we're just bringing our attention back in, I don't know. Now move from that, I don't know. I don't know. You know what? I don't know either. And that's as close as the answer will ever come. But the I don't know doesn't form itself. It stays I don't know. And then something else catches us. And there are many other ways and tricks, including a encouragement to see what it is this sense of self is. Who am I? What is this thing? But here is a quicker way. Here is one way that I gave one group and I think is a very beautiful statement of what the self is in comparison to something else. Don't get upset if you don't understand it, please. 
what is seen out of your eyes. Not what are you seeing from your eyes, but what is seen out of your eyes. It makes it that you have the capacity to even be able to see. Whoa. That's big. So through your intentionality, through your longing, knowing that the sense of self obstructs and keeps corridoring you off from that deepest longing, because of your belief and investment in it, you begin to want to flush it out, to see it in all of its different disguises, to see it. It takes a stability of consciousness. It takes a stability of psyche to even be ready to see it. And so much preparation work in being able to heal from some of the ways we loathe, have self-loathing, have to be accomplished prior to even developing a stability of consciousness enough to ask the question. Now, you don't have to be completely healed of all your woes. You don't. And many people say, well, I'm not ready yet. And that's self-doubt. Because it will arise naturally within your practice at some point where you just want to know. And then you are ready. When the curiosity is overwhelming, what is this thing? And that is the moment of readiness. If it's not interesting to you, then use your practice in other ways, and at some point it will be, because intuitively it brings you, if your intention, if your intention is in this way, at some point it will bring that readiness to bear. Just give me just a second or two. (laughs) Okay, this will be the last question, okay? Yes, one closest to me. What happens to relationships with partners, friends, when you're ready and you ascend the mountaintop? For first of all, that was a very poor metaphor I used because you can stay right in the base camp and do everything. Okay? I like climbing the peaks. That's my, I just like it. I want to see it. I just, I want to, you know, that's, that's my style. But you can stay in the base camp and deal with the interactions of everyday life, including your partner and arrive at the same understanding and be a deeper and more intimate partner in the process. Nothing has to change in terms of your connectedness to the world. In fact, that just grows. And you can use your connectedness to the world to flush out the very deepest truths that are there. And you do that through love. And then you will have ascended the mountaintops while staying at the base camp. And that's you see? Okay, y'all. Good. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two?
So just sit in, you see. What is this wonder of me? What is this wonder of me? This wonder of you. You have to ask the question from the heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.